everybody. I am looking forward to sharing some thoughts with you in response to your awesome comments and questions. So thank you so much for all of you who added your comments and your questions. I always think that I have plenty of time to answer them and you guys ask such good questions that I have to start zipping through stuff. So let's do this, let's, let's get into it. Uh, the, these questions are in light of the ancient war language view that Copan presented. And we'll kick things off with Jonathan's comments and questions. So Jonathan, you said it was a, an interesting argument and you have two questions. The first was uh, this argument uh, has a lot of hyperbole and uh, meaning that is this becoming an accepted view in order to make passages about total destruction more palatable? And then secondly, how widely is this reading being accepted? So when you were at Hillsong, you were taught this and you know others at other Christian colleges, but it isn't something you hear in the pulpit that often. And you've never seen a study Bible with a literary genre for each book of the Bible on the first page with all the other info of that book. Could this be a newer argument uh, about reading the Bible that just hasn't had the time to spread throughout the church yet? So actually real quick, I'll make a comment about the, the Bible. I would think the ESV study Bible probably has all this stuff in it. So I would recommend that to you if, if you've never seen that before. But in terms of, is this becoming more acceptable to make the passages more palatable? So I, I guess I wanna say for some, that could be the case. Um, uh, so I, I confess that the fact that a passage isn't palatable may be evidence that our interpretation is off in some way. Um, but it may also be evidence that our modern sensibilities are getting in the way. So I, of course, I just can't speak for, for all scholars on that issue. I will say, however, that comparative studies with ancient Near Eastern texts have produced these kinds of approaches over the last 30, 40 years or so. The, and here's the reason why. The world of the ancient Near East was opened up to us starting about 100 years ago when these ancient texts were finally translated. So this provided a way to interpret the Bible differently than ever before. So this is true with creation texts, like the Enuma Elish, which has had a huge impact on how Genesis is viewed by many Bible scholars, Christian and non-Christian alike. So I, I cannot stress the significance of what those texts that have been translated from the cultures that were around the, the, uh, the Israelites in the Old Testament, and of course the Christians in the New Testament. But really, I'm, I'm, I'm talking more about the Israelites um, in the ancient Near East. It's just been a huge deal. So why, why are these approaches becoming more uh, popular? And why are they around now? I want to say because, yes, I, I think these ideas are beginning to seep into 
popular level Christian culture. So you ask how new is the approach to reading the Bible literarily? And I want to say, I don't, I don't think it's terribly new. It's been around in academic studies for a long time, but for an idea to break into or move into the popular level of Christian culture sometimes is tough. So it seems that Christians, uh, some, some Christians have such strong commitments to how they approach the Bible, and these commitments are connected to a community. So any suggestion on how to approach the Bible differently, or even talking differently about what the Bible even is, for some may feel like an attack on their community or on their entire belief system. I have seen this to be true with Genesis 1. If a different perspective is presented regarding how to read Genesis 1, sometimes I hear Christians say that seems like one isn't trusting in God if they read Genesis 1 differently. And therefore, if you're not trusting God with Genesis 1, how are you trusting God with other parts of the Bible? And I find that conclusion to be very unnecessary. I think that there are nuances and options here that are available, and we don't have to revert to saying this shows one isn't trusting or believing in a part of the Bible. In terms of what's going on in the pulpit specifically, uh, that's a very interesting uh, question or comment or, or observation, Jonathan. And I wonder if the lack of commentary on literary genres in the pulpit has to do with more of the nature of what a sermon is these days. Uh, if moral application has taken precedence and, and pastors feel such a pressure to apply the Bible, I have that in, in air quotes here, so that uh, a literary analysis is being pushed to the side, uh, either because it's not viewed as important or a pastor does view it as important but they want to show the fruit, not the root, as uh, I've heard before. Um, so I'm, I'm understanding of that idea, but I think, I think it's really important for a pastor to guide uh, and teach the, the people how to read the Bible. And I think literary genre is a significant component of that. Very good. Oh dear, that was six and a half minutes. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna move more quickly here. Liz, uh, you say uh, the examples of how we exaggerate in our modern day made the biblical war language not as horrific. Um, you found it helpful, um, and you were reminded to zoom out and see the big picture, um, and that uh, it was also helpful to hear the phrase "driven out" was used of Adam and Eve in the garden. Copen gets into the different genres, which you say you don't often think about when you're reading the Bible. And yeah, I, I want to say, I think that that's something we don't think about because we're not the original audience. So I'm with you, Liz. I think we're at a disadvantage when we read the Bible. And I that might be frustrating for some, but I'm going to say that uh, some something that maybe you'll have an issue with. So uh, hear, hear me out on this but I don't think the Holy Spirit teaches us what the genres of the Bible are. So if Copan is right, that the language of devote to destruction in the ancient Near East 
was uh, was war smack talk, then we would not have known about that without finding the parallels in ancient texts. So does this mean that the church has possibly been wrong about interpreting some texts for thousands of years? Yes, it does. Is that hard to process for some? Yeah, I think so. But I, I don't think that means that the church has been wrong about everything. They haven't been wrong about Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, the core doctrines. But, yep, I'm with you. I think the, the topic of genre is a super big deal. So thank you. Joan, Joan Stottle, you said Copan speaks of the use of hyperbole in war texts. Would he extend his view of the use of hyperbole to other texts like 2 Peter 3.9? The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Or does the interpretation of this passage depend on one's theological perspective? And then you have a question, Joan, about Moody, and if Moody was teaching this approach in the 60s. So I want to say Second Peter is not an ancient Near Eastern war text. It's an ancient letter from the first century, and it's a, it has its own genre, which is called prose discourse. So I will attach a Bible project video regarding ancient letters to this uh, podcast lesson. What Copan is doing with Joshua, paralleling other word texts, is what has been done with Peter and ancient letters. So we actually have tons of examples of ancient letters that look like New Testament letters. Uh, I think actually New Testament letters tend to be much longer then first century letters, uh, it was really expensive to actually create a letter. Um, so it's really quite amazing. But the formatting is quite similar. Now, in regards to what Peter means by God is wanting all to come to repentance, that is a different issue. So first off, remember that the word is not an English word, all. It's a Greek word. So we've got to be careful to not automatically download all our English ideas of all. So that's maybe frustrating, but as good as English translations are, they are always going to let us down at a certain level because they are the result of interpretations by people who have their own theological bias, and we're reading their choice of all with our theological bias. Um, not that I'm saying don't use English uh, translations, by letting us down, I think I just mean they can only get us so far. So how does the context possibly inform our view of all? Well, I, I am curious if just looking at a few of the verses around it might help. Um, so here's just one thought. It says, the Lord is not slow, to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, Peter says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then he says the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the earth will be burned up and dissolved. And it says in verse 11, Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be as you're waiting for this day. So I wonder if the all there is specifically relating to Peter's 
recipients, those that he's writing to. That's that's my thought. So I I can't do a deep dive into that. I I do think you're right, Joan, that not only how you approach uh, the text in terms of your hermeneutic, your interpretation method, but also your theology definitely plays into the idea of all there. Absolutely. Lori and Beth Ann, you guys had similar questions. So I'm going to put these together. Lori, you said um, that uh, there are many different examples in the Bible to demonstrate that the Bible can't be taken literally. So you have the Amalekite, Amalekite survivors. Uh, so your question is, why do several religions or sects of religions interpret the Bible so literally? Um, and I'm going to take that by religions, you mean denominations, because you're going to say that you've seen this with the ELCA church, so drastically different from the LCMS. Um, so I... So, yeah, so you're talking about the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. And then also, I'm just going to double check here, LCMS, LCMS. Yeah, the Lutheran Church, the Missouri Senate. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I was I was 90% sure that that's what you were referring to. So just different Lutheran denominations. But just want to double check. Um, so why are they different? And then Beth Ann, you say that uh, you were raised and a Southern Baptist uh, tradition um, is something that you were raised in. And um, uh, you didn't necessarily have a question. You were just commenting that... Um, uh, oh, is it common in the Southern Baptist Church um, to have this approach or possibly other denominations? So, so Lori's asking about different Lutheran denominations and Beth Ann, you're asking about the uh, Southern Baptist denomination. So I want to say yes, uh, taking the Bible at face value or literally is something that is pretty common in fundamental Baptist circles. I was raised in a fundamental um, Baptist uh, tradition. So the problem, of course, is we're bringing modern assumptions to a very ancient text. Uh, so I would say, um, uh, sorry, uh, so, oh, sorry, someone may then say, doesn't God want us to just take the plain meaning of scripture? I would say, yep, I think he does. And he did because the original audience did read it plainly and were able to understand it because they got the genre right away. The genre is a part of their culture. There's no explanations needed. So remember, I, I said that that's like an inside joke and they were on the inside of the joke and we're outsiders and we just don't get it. So some uh, might say, uh, God, doesn't, doesn't God want us to understand the Bible? And shouldn't it be easy? And I would say, well, yes, I think he does want us to understand the Bible, but I don't think it means that it's going to always be easy. God decided to reveal his truth within history to particular people thousands of years ago using 
their approaches of communication. If God would have written the Bible today, he would have used uh, social media, news articles, novels, blogs, magazines. So there you go. And then, Lori, in terms of why some denominations see the Bible differently, that, that requires a big deep dive into the history of each denomination, their theological commitments, and various cultural issues going on at that time. I, I would actually even say even what Bible is, is chosen plays a part in the theological and interpretive moves of a specific church tradition. All right. Sorry, that was my dog. Hush, Rory. Hush. Okay. All right, Andy Griffin, we're wrapping up with your fine comments and questions. So you share that you've always taken the account uh, of different genres and anthropomorphic language very seriously. Um, so you, you ask first off about Paul Copan believing in biblical inerrancy. So let's, let's tackle that one first. I want to say yes, I think that Copan would believe in biblical inerrancy, um, but that word inerrancy has, <clears throat> has become really loaded lately. And I, I don't know if it's that helpful anymore. So I, I know a lot of Bible scholars who are just saying that might not be the best way to talk about the ideas that are behind that word. So the Chicago statement of inerrancy is something that I find helpful. So maybe I can put a link to that in this lesson. But in it, a whole bunch of Bible scholars came together and we said, <clears throat> they said this, we believe that the Bible is true in all that it intends to affirm. So that nuance is really important. Sometimes we think the Bible is affirming something as true when the author may say to us, what do you mean? I, I wasn't talking about that. I didn't intend it to be taken literally. Okay. So in terms of your other comment, you said you were uncomfortable with the presupposition behind all these views. One, that we need to absolve God, that he is otherwise unjust, unfair, and or a moral monster. And two, that anyone is innocent or resembles anything close to it and deserve something other than eternal damnation. So then you quote Sproul as saying, the issue is not why God punishes sin, but why does he permit the ongoing human rebellion? And that God sets limits to his patience and forbearance. He warns us over and over, someday the ax will fall and his judgment will be poured out. So totally hear you, Andy. Uh, I appreciate your commitment to the, the doctrine of our, our sin, the reality of it and that God does not need to be excused or apologized for regarding what he does. So I'm totally with you. Now, just in terms of the, the phrase moral monster, Copan, just so you know, is responding to atheists like Richard Dawkins in his book. Uh, when he titles the book, Is God a Moral Monster? He's responding to these new atheists and their charges against God's actions in the Bible. So <clears throat> I, I just have four things to wrap up. And this is actually maybe a way to wrap up a lot of stuff we've been talking about. So four things, Andy, to consider. One, regarding the Hebrew word cherem, or devote to destruction. Is there, is there <clears throat> evidence in the text that survivors remained? When God harems Israel, does he literally destroy them? Does the fact that Rahab and other Canaanites being saved leave us with questions? 
to think about. Um, he says destroy everybody, but not killing Rahab is apparently okay. And remember, Rahab was Jesus's grandma. What about other ancient Near Eastern war texts? How much should that play into our understanding of the text? Could that be a major motivation for how to read the text rather than um, concerns about apologizing for God um, or um, the, the idea of it being unjust or unfair? Also, number three, how much of our theology does impact how we read these passages? Um, and of course it does. So are we bringing assumed ideas into how we read even history and the Bible that we might need to consider? Is this helpful or is it slowing us down? And then finally, how does understanding um, that God literally commanded a wiping out of all the Canaanites relate to God's overall mission to bring all people, sorry, people from every nation into his kingdom. So when Jesus speaks to the Gentiles in the way he does, does it seem like there's a difference to a literal reading of God wiping out all the Canaanites? So are those things that warrant consideration for, for us as we sort through what is going on in this text? So it's a fair question. Are, are these just our sensibilities getting in the way? Are we uh, judging God as we most definitely should not, as Job learned? Um, or are we noticing something there, some evidence that might require us to look at the passage in different ways? So obviously, I have not fully resolved any of this stuff for any of us, including myself, but hopefully along the way, we're learning more about not only how to read God's word, but hopefully um, at the end of the day, it's going to help us not just know more about God, but come to a deeper relationship and love for the God who loves us so much. Thanks, guys.